Hi, Marsha. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Arsa. And welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Bulak podcast, recorded in Morocco and discussing books from, about, and related to the Arab region. Uh, yes. And today, because it is now January 4th, as we're recording, uh, we want to talk about books that are coming in this new year, uh, from Arabic into English. Uh, one of the next ones being published is called Banthology, and it was edited by Sarah Cleave at Comma Press, and I think has been basically in the works since January 16th, 2017, or approximately there, whenever it was that Donald Trump, the current President of the United States, <clears throat> issued his travel ban diktat, uh, targeted at citizens of seven countries who had then what they believed were valid visas to the United States and suddenly were not any longer. And the seven nations, if I will remember correctly, are Libya, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, Sudan, and Yemen. And that's the legal status of the ban, I've sort of lost track at this point. It keeps getting challenged, reinstated. I don't. I'm. I think up till now, people from those seven countries are mostly unable to travel to the United yes. States. Yes. Yeah. Like and in, he's changed the. There have been some changes to the list of countries as well. Right. But the but goal. The goal of just making sure to like shut out a bunch of people from a particular part of the world. Yes, make their lives more difficult. Certainly he has uh, succeeded in doing that. Um, so the the idea originated, I'm fairly certain, at Comma Press, uh, To although it will also be published in the United States in March uh, through New Vessel, I'm 99% sure. And the idea was to select a story from each of the countries um, and collect it together in this anthology, which is about 70 pages long, so it's quite a short book. And, you know, it uh, it's both interesting and problematic. You know, there's there have been previous such collections. There's the Axis of Evil collection, which gathers together uh, work from North Korea, Yemen, I forget where else. At the time that it was published in 2007, who was part of the Axis of Evil, I can't remember anymore. This is our current, uh, or what, how Trump views the Axis of Evil citizens from these seven countries. And, uh, and so, of course, it in some ways reproduces this framework, uh, brings together these, these short stories in conversation with each other, um, <clears throat> as a sort of a political intervention in some way. Yeah, as a as an act of opposition, right? Yes. As mm -hmm. a sort of we disagree with this ban, and even though these people can't travel to the United States, their stories can. Right. Right. I mean, and Comma Press com publishes a lot of story collections. Yes, right? Comma Press is a big short story publisher. They're the ones who discovered Hassan Balasim, which I think is a great discovery. He initially was part of a collection called Medina, I believe, which brought together stories from around um, Arabic 
majority Arabic speaking majority countries. Yeah, he's a ta- <clears throat> he's a Iraqi writer. He's talented. Yes. Um, so yes, and they have they produce they they have another forthcoming short story collection too by a, a Palestinian uh, short story writer who they discovered through another anthology. So I mean I don't think. To me, the idea of this anthology doesn't particularly appeal. Not that I think there's anything wrong with it, and there may be good writers in it, but it's, um, you know, the sort of making a political statement through your reading. I mean, it, it's fine. I I personally tend to, first of all, read short story collections by a single author more often than by a collection of different authors, because I'm looking for the writing of a particular person and, you know, um, when it's a collection of different people that, you know, there may be one, a few that I like and a few that I don't, but it's probably unlikely that I'm going to like most of them even. It's, I guess it's a nice way to, to, to discover people. Uh, I, I, I feel like it's slightly the equivalent of like, a political statement t-shirt this kind of a book mm. right like you're really like you're going to be holding your book on the subway sort of like i oppose trump y- 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 right you right. know um but uh i think what i liked about it where i thought it sort of slipped this trap a little bit or somewhat more than a little bit was that the stories are all sort of new ways of seeing borders and bands so it is an intervention into the idea of borders and bands. And I particularly liked Najwa bin Shetwan's short story. Um, uh, it's a set in the future, and actually there are two of them set in the future, which I thought was perhaps a common press intervention since they're also the publisher that brought us Iraq Plus 100, which is science fiction or future fiction in Iraq. And um, her short story, which was translated by Savad Hussein, is set... Uh, we don't know when in the future, but there's a, t- a town called Schrodinger, which is perhaps a bit too much on the nose. But the whole thing is quite funny. In the, this town, which is not necessarily a Libyan town or an Arab town, but it could be, is able to float through space and time. Um, and it, and um, it was visited by these Americans who ended up dying there because... Uh, it could not deliver them back to the United States, and this town keeps trying to float back over the United States to return the bodies of these U.S. citizens, but, um, you know, the U.S. is very suspicious that they think these people are trying to scale. The the walls around the United States have become so high that you can only see the shit-splattered crown of the Statue of Liberty, or it was bird shit-splattered, I don't know, it was a lovely phrase. Um, And... uh, and, you know, they're constantly just trying to return these bodies to the United States so they can be reinterred with their families, and they cannot. So, I, I mean, it, <laughs> that one I particularly liked. Um, so they commissioned the stories, probably, for the collection? Like, they asked writers to respond to... Yes, I think some of the writers... And, yeah. I would imagine that some of the writers probably pulled out something they already had. Mm. Um, but yes, I think they can. I didn't even know that Najwa wrote short stories. I only know her novel, Slaves' Pens, which was shortlisted for the International Prize for Arabic Fiction, which is about um, s- slavery as it was in, in Libya and is very interesting. But, uh, <clears throat> but I, this was 
a fun new way of seeing Najwa and her writing. And uh, the Iranian writer, whose name I shamefully can't remember at all, um, I really enjoyed his short story as well, and I'm now going to look for more writing fr from him. And so this is what I like about collections. I, you know, sometimes I don't like most of what's in the collection, but I find one, one new writer and I'm really excited about it. Yeah, and I mean, and it makes... The point is valid. I mean, it, it's uh, the the concept behind it, which is simply, you know, to to almost poke fun at this ridiculous, at this nonsensical band by mm -hmm. saying, you know, and here are some stories by these, you know, supposedly terribly dangerous people that you insist must all you know be kept out because they're all the same and they're all a threat I mean, right obviously right and their short stories are very different and they come from very different literary translate literary traditions rather the Somali one is translated from the italian mm. um uh and then uh so in terms of uh, forthcoming uh, works uh, that are in, have just been translated and published from Arabic, another book is uh, Frankenstein in Baghdad, which was uh, a winner of the International Prize for Arabic Fiction in 2014, I believe, and translation into English usually follows upon winning this award, which is also commonly known as the Arabic Booker and uh, is awarded in the United Arab Emirates. The author is Ahmed Saadawi. Uh, he's Iraqi, and the book is set in Baghdad uh, after the American invasion and occupation. And it has a neat premise, I think. Uh, it has a great premise. Yeah, <clears throat> so so there is a, a creature that is a created. A what's-its-name, or what's, yeah, what's-its-name. Yeah, uh, who who is created from the from the body parts of victims of the bombings and violence that's taking place in Baghdad, and so uh, someone uh, puts these pieces back together, and the creature takes life and begins roaming through the city and exacting more or less revenge, mm -hmm. and has sort of memories. From the body, it's body parts. parts, yeah, and we should mention it was translated into English by Jonathan Wright. Yes, uh, I mean, I thought the the premise was great, uh, and I I wrote about this book a long time ago. I think when it when it won the prize and was only and, and I, I read the initial chapters in Arabic. I, I would say then, though, unfortunately for me, uh, as the story progresses. It, it doesn't live up to its premise, I would say, and it is a little bit too much a um, just series of events. Uh, there's sort of themes or characters or, or, or an arc for me were not like developed that well, and it just became a series of and then this happened and then that mm -hmm. happened, and a, I, I kind of lost. A plot-driven novel. Yeah, I mm -hmm. lost. I lost interest a bit. Mm. Um, and I think the next thing coming up after uh, Frankenstein in Baghdad is The Stillborn by Arwa Saleh, which also has been anticipated for a long time, translated by Sama Salim. And I haven't 
read it, although I've heard a lot about it from Sama and um, and a lot about Arwa Saleh, who has a sort of legendary status on the Egyptian literary scene. She was a um, Marxist feminist or Marxist something feminist uh, in the 1970s student movement, uh, as well as a writer. And this was published right as she committed suicide. She also was... was it was? It was published in the 90s? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, I'm not sure if it was published after she committed suicide or right before. I didn't realize. So she's she's reflecting on her years in the student movement, but like two decades later. Oh, okay. Um, so <clears throat> this is, I think, very interesting to reflect on the student movement of the 70s, um, generally politics and literature in Egypt. Um, I don't I don't know to what extent it's exciting as a literary document versus a or a literary experiment versus um, a sort of social political historical document, but it certainly will be interesting to read for Arwa's perspective and for sort of her legendary status in, in the movement and in literature circles. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this book. And like you said, I, I, I haven't got my hands on a copy yet. And I'm not, I tried actually when I was in Cairo to mm. get a copy in Arabic. And it, the book itself is only available from, um, it's one of the sort of national book printing uh, organization that has mm. its own bookstores and there was and I couldn't I just the general yeah. Egyptian book organization something like that oh. I think and so it involved going to their outlets and I didn't manage to find the time to go there I couldn't find it in any of the bookstores downtown mm. although people were aware of it and uh yeah she, she's surrounded by a kind of aura uh I guess um, was just a sort of important figure in this movement. And then I think because of the failure of a recent uprising in Egypt, there's this sort of hunger for previous accounts. And because I, the premise of her book, I mean, from the title and everything seems to be a, an analysis of why this previous movement was not successful mm. and of its shortcomings. I think also the fact that it's written by a, a woman when revolutions and uprisings and political movements to this day have been dominated by men and mm. by male voices. Right. And so perhaps she has a different perspective. There's a lot of reasons why people are interested in it and and I, I, I am myself. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this uh, to this translation. Right, and that's coming from Seagull Books, which is based in India, and it should be out right at the end of January. Another yeah. book that um, I'm excited about, we won't be able to get until March from Interlink Books, and it's by Jabir Duwehi, who is one of my favorite novelists. He's a Lebanese novelist, and this is stylistically a different a departure for him. Um, I think you might say some of his other books have been more uh, serious. <laughs> um, this is a young man arrives in Beirut with a literary manuscript 
He's told it's not publishable, nobody reads anymore. Um, he takes a job as a proofreader instead. Um, but then, uh, mysteriously, the book is printed on this very expensive paper. As it turns out, the publishing house is really um, running a, a scam, a sort of a, a counterfeiting money scam. It's, that's the paper that it's been printed on, and so hijinks ensue, you know, international um, criminal hijinks ensue. Um, and so this is, it's a uh, satiric novel, a funny novel. It's being translated, or it's, I'm sure it's already been translated by Paula Haider uh, since it's coming in a couple months now. And um, and yet it, it does address some of the th same themes that you find in um, Jabir's other works, which are about... What is truth? You know, he's got um, wonderful liar narrators and um, confusion. Is somebody uh, Muslim or are they Christian? Um, in this, is this a publishing house? No, it's not really a publishing house. It's a counterfeit money operation. Is this a book? It's not a book. Um, so there's sort of um, layers of um, what is truth uh, embedded in this also... Um, satiric novel. And I just really enjoy uh, Jabir Duahi's style and um, his his eye for beautiful uh, telling details about the world. So I'm very excited about that. It's kind of, um, I don't know if this is the intention, but in this context where it's really hard for writers to make a living writing and books are sort of, let's say literature is dismissed as, um, you know, not a way to make money. To right. have the To have the books in the story be actually, like... Be money. Be piles of cash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also where, where you have a kind of, you know, people often bemoan the sort of, like, lack of value ascribed to literature. So it sounds like he's playing with that. Right, yes. So it's funny and serious and funny serious all at the same time. Um, I, uh, I hope people um, find it, discover it, enjoy it. But it so was you've also already gotten of, a copy. Uh, uh, oh, I have a PDF, is that? Ah, okay, all right. <laughs> um, and it was one of Mohammed uh, Abdelnebi's uh, favorite reads of 2017 on our list of Arab authors' favorites. And um, one can always feel pretty good about Mohammed's literary choices, I think. You said he's someone <clears throat> that if he picks a book that he likes, then it usually works for you. Yes, exactly. That's great, people like that. Yes. I have found them slowly in my life as well, through trial and error. Because you also have people who, like, strenuously recommend right. the book. And you then... must read Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist. Like, I oh, haven't had ones that are okay. quite as egregious as that. But <laughs> I have had ones where, and then you're like, strike that person forever from my <laughs> list of recommendations. I mean, it's not that it's exactly a bad book, but you no. just yeah. think, not for me. Right, and... or I've already read this version, 10 versions of this book in my life and this is exactly the same but it's like being given bad directions or something you're like never again that person <laughs> that person is untrustworthy <laughs> yes no Mohammed I feel is trustworthy we should rely on Mohammed cool 
And uh, what what else? Is there something else that you want to mention that you're looking forward yes. to in the coming months? Yes, I'm looking forward to, this is coming from Archipelago, and it's Pearls on a Branch, Tales from the Arab World Told by Women. And I don't know, um, I don't I don't know the, the, the editor, it was collected by Najla Khoury, but it was translated by Inea Bushnak, and she previously put together this collection called Arab Folk Tales, which along with Italo Calvino's Italian Folk Tales, was one of the great treasures of my childhood. So, since I, you know, I had this great love of reading and rereading folk tales, and both Italo Calvino's and Inez were one of the great delights of my childhood, I, I'm hoping to become small again, and that these folk tales that were collected um, from women's tellings, which I just I, I don't I don't know that they're particularly womanish or just that women tell women traditionally tell of stories um, will be very exciting to me. Cool. Yeah, it's it's told by women just because it, it's not told it's not because they're made by women authors. It's just told by women in the sense that women are the traditionally the storytellers within the family and that's who she collected the stories from she yes she collected stories as told by women so okay. i um they may be different from how male story you know the the tales that male storytellers tell i don't know if there's anything particularly gendered about how stories are collected maybe there are maybe the introduction will open my eyes to that entirely um I just, you know, from a childish perspective of enjoying folk tales, I'm very excited about it. Yeah, yeah, that sounds neat. Um, so it, there are many, many other books forthcoming in uh, 2018, uh, including Mohammed Abdul Nabi's own In the Spider's Room, which we, we talked about in, I believe, our first episode. Yeah, uh, we both liked that. Yes, indeed, and that was also translated by Jonathan Wright. And I'm sure in the show notes we'll have a link to the complete list as we know it of books forthcoming in 2018. Well, you put together that list, right? I have a list from January through mid-June, the first half of the year, with a bonus item, which is that Carl Sharo, if, um, if, you know, if you're on Twitter and you don't follow Carl Remarks, I don't know. I don't know about you. <laughs> and he has a book... Uh, forthcoming from Saki in the, in the summer, and then God created the Middle East and said, let there be breaking news. And I think that will be fun. And if it's not funny, I'll be shocked. Me too. Although it's, he's so funny uh, in person and on Twitter. And then I, and I'm sure he'll be funny, but it is probably a transition to move to a longer format, move to a book format. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm sure he'll be funny in, in a book format as well. Yeah. I'm I think it'll be a great uh, summer beach read. And I'm already recommending this as your summer beach read. And so I just want to ask you a little bit. When you put together, do you put together a list uh, you, you every year, generally? Um, I, <laughs> I'm not terribly systematic. Usually I put together a list with the idea that I'm going to need this information um, about what's forthcoming. So... Uh, uh, I'm generally putting it together for myself, and then um, starting, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I realized, oh, I should be sharing this with everyone else, um, that other people could benefit from having a, at least as comprehensive as I can get, 
list of what's forthcoming in Arabic literature and translation. I'm sure I know I've used I use it. I feel I feel like when I'm trying to figure out what books are forthcoming and might be worth reviewing, I'm sure a bunch of people use it. Well, I hope that way. I would also be delighted if I felt that um, uh, professors who are teaching Arabic literature and translation had a look at it. I think you know sometimes one can teach the things that one was taught or things that one read uh, a long time ago, and it's just it's nice to know what's fresh and and coming out in translation for people who are teaching Arabic literature in translation in particular. Yeah, and also there might be books that you love in Arabic and you're sort of waiting for them mm. to come out because mm-hmm. that allows you to mm-hmm. to share them more widely. And and you basically you're in touch with like all the different publishers on, No, most online? of this, no, most of this I did detective work. S- detective work. Um I would say there is an extreme minority. Oxford University Press informed me about the uh AUC titles that are coming out and AUC you did not. Um <laughs> Wag of the finger. <laughs> um, some translators told me books that they have coming. Uh, mostly it's all detective work. Yeah. Yeah, it would be nice if people just, uh, if it got automated to the point where everybody's just sending you press releases, <laughs> advance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, instead, I most of my press releases are from the Dubai Soap Festival and some new car that's out. Well, um... I think it's super useful, and I feel like I owe you because I often look on Arablit to see what I might suggest for review in like the next six months. To well, magazines. it's also a good so it's a good resource if anybody out there is a reviewer or aspiring reviewer to go look at what's or a publication who's interested in expanding what they review. It's a, a good resource as well. Mm. Because some publications, they tell me, oh, but I just don't know what's out there in Arabic literature. How could I possibly know? Well, you can know. Yeah, and actually there's, there's a, more and more probably, like you've, you've probably seen it growing a bit, this list, right? Oh, like absolutely, the- absolutely. Um, I would say that, so now I have a 18. Now there are always titles that are not listed in... Um, catalogs and such so they just pop up and I didn't know about them or from smaller publishing houses that I don't know about. So I would say that it has expanded so that there are probably about between 40 and 50 titles a year in Arabic literature in translation where previously um, in previous decades you might have had 10 and then previous to Mahfouz uh, you know one a year or zero a year so yeah. it, it is increased a, a tremendous by a tremendous amount in a relatively short f- space of time. To the point that like keeping up entirely is a challenge. Right, I, right. I, I have to I have to sort of discriminate and try to find out which ones to focus on and which ones to read among the new titles because it's not possible to just read what's coming out. Yeah, I mean, all. I probably last year read all but about two of them, but it does also then um, impact what I can read of other literature, which yeah. is something of a shame. I don't get to read as widely then as I want to, so it's kind of a balancing act. I don't want everything I read to be... Um, 
Arabophone or Arabic literature and translation. I want to be able to read from other traditions as well. Yeah. Otherwise, I just become too narrowed and not able to see the wider picture of what's going on in literature in general. Yeah, especially the, as you said, like the, the authors themselves that were on your year-end list, like they're reading from around the world. Like right. we're all reading from around the world, right. I think. Or, or not maybe, but it's, it's increasingly common, I think. Um, and, uh, and so then there's another title we want to talk about, which will get, has got plenty of attention because it's right. from a big name in Arabic literature. And this is the new translation of... Uh, Adonis's um, late, latest work, I guess? Yes, yes. It, uh, it was published in 2012 by Dodesati, and it is... Concert. He, he uh, you know, it was billed as he came out of retirement to publish it, so... Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. So, Con Concerto al-Quds, mm -hmm. uh, which, as the title suggests, is about the city of Jerusalem, mm -hmm. or... Perhaps more aptly about the idea of Jerusalem? It's definitely more about the idea of Jerusalem versus so, yeah. the people and lived reality of Jerusalem. And I'll just say that the translation by Khaled Matawa came out, uh, pub, public, pub date was yesterday, uh, January 3rd. And, um, yeah, I, I read it between last night and this morning. <laughs> but actually reading, uh, I don't read poetry that often. I have to say I'm much more of a prose reader. And reading it early in the morning over a cup of coffee, it's a, it's a basically long, single, I mean, broken into sections, but like a long, single prose poem. It was a nice way to go through it for the first time. I think it's a work that one can go through many times. Mm -hmm. So one of the things about it is that it's very, very dense with references. Yes. Uh, so it has extensive footnotes at the end, and it's sort of... It's yes, so to talk a little bit about Adonis and who he is before we get too sure, far into the sorry. discussion. He, he is someone who is um, very knowledgeable about the history of... Arabic poetry and who has written widely about Arabic poetry from pre-Islamic times and he name checks, uh, not name checks, he involves Imrul Qais as a character in this um, in this long poem um, about Al-Quds and so he's one of Syria's most, he is the most famous Syrian poet probably to this day. Famous, famous definitely. Um, and he, people have very different feelings about him, very often very strong feelings about him. Certainly, I think there is little doubt of his importance to poetry, uh, to Arabic poetry, particularly in the 1960s and 1970s, both as a writer and as an editor. Right, so he was a great sort of great modernist. Mm -hmm. He uh, broke, I mean, he was a great advocate of the prose poem. Uh, which was a huge radical innovation at the time. He was very influenced by French poetry, and he moved from uh, Syria to Beirut as a young man, mm -hmm. and in the 50s founded this very famous poetry magazine called Poetry, Shad, mm -hmm. and... Um, 
argued for these uh, revolutionary uh, literary and poetic Aesthetics. forms mm -hmm. and and theories from the pages of that magazine. And when we say prose poem, we don't necessarily mean the same thing that an English language reader thinks of as pro a, a prose poem, but basically the sort of shattering of um, st strong uh, poetic forms. The reinventing of poetic forms outside of previous boundaries. And of meter, which uh, yes, was exactly. the basis of, I mean, was preponderant in Arabic poetry and... and uh, and uh, so, and he has a particular poem uh, that was published in 1961 that everybody invokes, mm -hmm. which is, what's the title in English? Mihyar of Damascus, His Songs mm -hmm. is how it's been mm -hmm. translated, uh, which sort of features a, uh, a figure of a revolutionary poet in mm -hmm. it. And Imrul Qais, who he has in uh, in this concerto, is also something of a revolutionary poet as well. Um, so I think he's definitely very engaged by the figure of the revolutionary poet. Yeah, yeah. Um, so should we talk about... Let's talk about the concerto Quds, and okay. then we'll talk about Adonis, Adonis and Revolution, okay. <laughs> which is which is a whole Although they are tied thing. together, yeah, yeah. the second to last line of concerto. Yeah, okay. yeah. No, absolutely. They are. Uh, so I, what, did, what did you think of the of this work? Um, I, based off of the, the opening image, I was prepared to really love it because I was blown away by the opening image. And I think that for surprising imagery, and I, and I will admit now to having read only a fragment of it in Arabic uh, that I found on the internet, and for the most part, I'm relying on Khaled's um, translation. Um, the, the opening image I found to be uh, stunning, and I think Adonis is certainly uh, wonderful at discovering st startling imagery. Um, I, I, as it wore on... Uh, Wait, do you want to okay. read it? <clears throat> up there, up above, look at her dangling from the sky's throat, look at her fenced with the eyelashes of angels. No one can walk toward her, but a man can crawl on his forehead and shoulders, perhaps even his navel. No, as I as I reread it and reread it, um, I imagined him in a more mocking tone about a person who um, sees themselves as religious. You know, uh, who who cannot walk any longer, but now can crawl on their forehead and shoulders, perhaps even on their navel. So then I, yeah, well, I liked the if, image less after that. Well, and if you, the, the very next line makes very explicit what you're talking about. So then he says, barefoot, knock on her door. A prophet will open and teach you how to march and how to bow. Right. And then later, um, here I am, a silhouette of Al-Quds cried a three-headed dummy on the stage, then exited. And I think the three-headed dummy is very clearly the three Abrahamic religions. And, and I did feel a little bit, some of it was a bit too on the nose for me, like, yes, Adonis, we realize that you don't like religion. Um, and some of it as a critique of religion felt a little bit too much like I was being told that religion is 
is bad and and it's just a big stage play. Yeah, so I'm, clearly that is the theme of the work is a, is a critique of religion, of monotheism, mm -hmm. of the whole holy imaginary that surrounds Jerusalem, which he keeps contrasting then with these very ugly, violent images. I mean, I think, you know, some of the really common words in the other than sky, which he refers to a lot, but blood certainly reoccurs again and again, and all sorts of images of the of the of the violence and the ugliness that has encroached on this city. I mean, I appreciated the the way he brings all its history in. So through all the mm. notations and quotations and citations, he, I mean, he and talks about all these specific landmarks and um, places in the city and things that have been said about the city. But he's doing all this in the service of his argument, so it's always then like undercut. Right. I would have preferred an essay about the poetics of Al-Quds and how how Arabic poetry has treated Al-Quds, and I feel like he would be an ideal person to write such a thing and could write it in a poetic uh, <laughs> way. Um, but, um, uh, uh, for instance, so he, uh, you mentioned blood, and he has Imrul Qais, I think, he has sticks this in Imrul Qais's mouth. And sorry, Imrul Qais is a early, a pre-Islamic poet. Yes, yes. Some people credit him with inventing the Qasida form. Okay. Um, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning, the word was blood. And uh, <laughs> it just also it felt a little bit too on the nose for me. Like, okay, the word's not God. It's blood. Got it. I mean, maybe I'm. Uh, I don't know. I felt the heaviness of, I guess, what you could call the belaboring of his point. By the end, um, there's such an accumulation of like negative imagery. And then mm. every once in a while when he says, when he sort of offers a little bit of uh, lightness or hope or what you might... I mean, he has a little section where he's like, praise be to song, praise be to love. Mm. But it's like way too little too late. Like, And it also feels like that's not where his heart is. Like his heart is really in like telling you is really in the darkness. Like, that's where the language sparks. Right. That's where... That's clearly what's driving him uh, to express himself. I guess I don't um, begrudge him or, you know, if that's his vision of this city and of revealed religion, it seems like a fair enough poetic vision like it's really dark but if that's personally how he lives this reality like there is a really dark side to Jerusalem I mm. mean it it and if he wants to kind of undercut the myth you know and which seems to be something he's been doing throughout his career I mean he was I guess very critical of of most Arab nationalist movements mm. and is been has been very critical of religion and I would say Islam and Islamism in particular uh, for a very long time. One reservation I had was that in presenting Jerusalem as sort of like this time immemorial like nexus of religion and violence, you kind of 
whitewash the current problems of Jerusalem, like and Zionism and the particular Zionist project of what's being done to the city right now and mm. who is the perpetrator of most violence, architectural, physical, and historical. Yes, this is very much of everybody in everybody is guilty. Every all all religions are guilty. Yeah, I mean he, there, he, he does, does talk about occupation. Absolutely, he does, and there's some very strong uh, critiques of 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 particular things that have been done by the Israelis to the city. Right, but it sort of fits in this, you know, oh the Holy Land has been a center of conflict and violence forever because of religion. Right, exactly. All religions. Right. And... Uh, Not a very specific series of things that has politically happened. Yeah. I mean, I just... There's that risk, right? right. Uh, mm-hmm. it, I mean, if, if because he is engaging pretty explicitly with what's happening in the city now. So Exactly. So it then is I not th- simply a historical poem. It is a poem about... Jerusalem of all times and why maybe why Jerusalem is the way it is now laid at the feet of Abrahamic religions the three-headed dummy on the stage yeah I mean it's a very it's it's a very scathing poem it's just this endless denunciation of not just what's wrong with religion, but sort of what's wrong with the Arab world, right? Because there's also all these kind of sweeping right. uh, <laughs> condemnations of, you know, sort of intellectual vacuousness and poor leadership, right? Mm-hmm. It's Yes. And even as they're strong sometimes, like there's images and sentences that are really strong like there's one i liked where it says you know the fathers leave their houses they don't need to lock them the houses themselves are locks yes like yes. there's a lot of beautiful descriptions of ways in which people are constricted yes he ha- certainly has a great talent um i guess it you know to me it's a question of because he uh, it, this felt like it was so much about this one idea that he wants to tell us about um, I, there, there were, there are some of these parenthetical moments, like this terrorism, kidnapping, unknown entity, extremism, accusation, denial. Now, this is of course in Khaled's translation. So, I was crazy law, about this. corruption, infidels, forgery, campaigns, violence, a court ruling, Al Qaeda, danger, struggle, hegemony, refuge, invasion, root. I mean, to me, it felt a little bit like you know a Billy Joel, we didn't start the fire kind of a list of things that end up being nonsense because there's. Yeah, it's a bunch of bad things. Terrorism, kidnapping. So, formally, that was one of my least favorite yes. elements of the entire poem. So it's basically between verses, you have this repeated motif. It happens, what, at least three, four, five times, mm-hmm. where in parentheses you just have these lists of long words, all sort of re- referencing negative, contemporary New things events. things you might re- see ri- ripped from the news headlines sort of thing, but not in any way that makes them fresh or new. Just they feel like things ripped from a series of words ripped from news headlines. Yeah. I mean, if I'm going to see the word terrorism, I want, in a poem, I want to think about this word in a totally fresh and new way, not the same way that I, that I see it reported in in the mainstream news. Yeah. And it's real because there are many other, there are so many images uh, that are striking and that are sort of beautiful and that, are evocative um 
I wonder if we should read one other thing, perhaps. Yes, I um, mean, I, I mean, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want the Adani's fans of the world to come, you know, dox me now and attack my house or anything. <laughs> well, <laughs> I do, I do agree that he has is is one of the you know contemporary poetry's great talents. But the thing is, I think, is the issue that you have with it because it it is so. I mean, for example, just a, a line in it says. Do you want to be described as a believer? Then you must kill. Yes, I mean, it's exactly. It's pretty clear. I, I just felt like there were so many things that were shouting in my face in a way that feels detached from contemporary lived reality. This didn't feel like a poem about Jerusalem, but the is, Jerusalem I saw. But does he have any obligation as a poet? Just because no, most people no. in Jerusalem are religious, does he have to respect their feelings or their religion? And no, not, he... I'm not asking him to respect anyone's feelings, except for mine as a reader, and I felt like I was being lectured too, which, as a reader, I, I'm not interested. If I want to lecture, I'll get a book that's going to lecture me. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. I'd like to reread it and figure out. Uh, yeah, I really, I've, I've read it three times. Now, my first time reading it was on a train, which is not the ideal way to read a book of poetry. Um, well, on a train with uh, children and people yeah. moving in and out of my train. Yeah, car. I was going to say, otherwise I love reading on trains. <laughs> I feel like reading and being on a train go really well oh, together. Okay. Well, I was being nudged by a small child. Oh no, children and reading go tear almost somebody was reading having to a loud, them. Somebody <laughs> was having a loud phone conversation also in my train car, so uh, no. I don't have a final opinion about uh, this book. It's This is, for me, a process of talking out what I think about it. Yeah, me too. No, I think it makes sense to me though, what you're saying, is that if, if it feels like there's something a little too overbearing or strident in the way, because he's basically in a way, laying his claim to this city and putting his vision of what it is, mm -hmm. which is a very dark one, and and calling all these other visions, like, empty and, and, and terribly destructive and sort of with a lie at their core, right? right. The idea yes. of actual nothingness there, of a lack of meaning is... Right, is just a present. shadow puppet show. Yeah. It's all fake. Yeah. Everything that everyone else believes except me. And, but then, I mean, there's so many little, but then he has these passages too. I mean, just, he has one that says, a, a schoolboy crosses a checkpoint. He defiles what ought never be defiled. Prison will suffice him until he reaches old age. And that's just like a snippet, but there's so many. That yeah, yeah. There are absolute uh, gorgeous images in this as well. And so it's, I, I don't know, um, much about the reception of this work in Arabic. I did read a number of uh, critiques because I am still struggling with my own opinion about it. And the, <laughs> I guess the one I, the one I glommed onto was the one that Echo, I can't remember who wrote it and I'm so sorry. Um, the one I glommed onto was the one that echoed what I was feeling, which was that it was very heavy, that it had gorgeous imagery, heavy in polemics, and that this person didn't think it stood up to ways that Palestinian poets have written about Jerusalem. That he would be more interested in reading Palestinian poets on Jerusalem. Oh, I don't, I don't know, necessarily know that you have to be Palestinian to write about Jerusalem. I think it's, it's a city that lives in the Arabic and Arab imaginary. Um, but 
but I definitely felt that there was a heavy polemic in there. Um, a lot of the reviews that I saw were adoring. Yeah. Some people said they, they wept reading it. Um, I, I didn't weep. I thought it was powerful. I, I mean, I, I, his, uh, his abilities are clear. I think it is polemical and it is not subtle. Mm. Uh, but that's sort of the tone he's embracing. It's a tone of like being a prophet, kind of, or being a. I suppose I mean, he maybe he sees himself as Mutta Nabi Part Two. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, he did rename himself Adonis. It's just not his. His I, parents didn't give him that name. I don't think the man lacks in self confidence. Let's say that. I mean, that's that's clear. And so more generally, his his work and his ah, stance, to talk about the politics. yeah, and his role <clears throat> as a as a really preeminent uh, sort of public intellectual. Uh, I mean, he's been based in France since the '80s. He left Beirut uh, part, largely because of the civil war, uh, and he is. Uh, constantly, somewhat, I assume for him, frustratingly mentioned as a possible Nobel Prize winner. It must be terrible to be on on that little list Always of people. Always the bridesmaid, uh, never the bride. Well, he what he we know certainly from Dennis Johnson Davies' memoir that he was cons being considered in the same year that Nagim Mahfouz was being considered. So we can assume that he has been considered ever since then, even though, you know, they technically don't reveal until 50 years later who they were considering mm. for the prize. Um, yes, and so there's a whole, there's a whole lore built up about what Adonis supposedly thinks about this and how he feels about the Nobel Prize and how it's influenced or not influenced his work. And there's I mean, he's recently been discussed in particular in relation to the position he has taken towards the Syrian uprising. Right. And, and we'll say that this, so this book, Concerto, was published in 2012. And the second to last line, I believe, is what can... And this is Khaled's translation again. What can spring do in a language that refuses to read anything but autumn? And I think we can only read that as being about the so-called Arab Spring. Yes. Uh, and so he famously or infamously has did not offer much support uh, to the protesters in and Syria. And indeed critique, you know, a strong critique. And when he offered a critique of um, al-Assad, it came as a balanced critique. Both sides are... Right. Have flaws, sort of a thing. So he famously said on television, I wouldn't join any protests that started from a mosque, mm -hmm. um, which most protests in the during the Arab Spring started from mosques also because that was one of the only physically safe places in which people could gather. Right. Although they then went to squares, like they didn't stay in mosques. Um, and, uh, and he also has made a number of statements about Arab culture being dead and Arabic literature being dead, seemingly with the exception of him. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you can assume that that uh, he doesn't count himself in these <laughs> statements. Uh, 
yeah, and uh, dismissive. His, his stance towards the protesters in Syria was very dismissive. Was mm-hmm. was dismissive of them as sort of, uh, you know, youth that didn't know what they were doing, um, having violence and uh, extremist uh, elements or tendencies within them, and being, you know, very much at risk of recuperation by Islamists, if not outright being led by Islamists. And yes, and then he wrote this open letter to Bashar al-Assad where he sort of like suggested that they liberalize gently, you know, and was very even-handed while addressing the elected president of Syria (laughs) and got a lot of, uh, well, a whole generation, I would say, of, of a younger generation of Arab intellectuals and artists. Basically, for them, this was the last straw that in a way made him, although they still admire his work... Right. I think it's hard to find somebody who doesn't admire yeah. him in, in some way. His poet, somebody who is a literature person who doesn't admire his work in some ways. But this, it's it's sort of compromised or made him irrelevant as a as an intellectual and political voice or or reference point. I think. And, and we've you reminded me of a of a quite good essay that the Iraqi novelist Sinan Antoun had written right. about Adonis a couple of years ago. Right. Maybe it was 2012 or something. I think um, around the t- same time that Concerto was published in, in its original Arabic. And he does, he begins by saying some of the great things that Adonis has accomplished and then by talking about um, his role in these, you know, Orientalist statements about uh, Arabic culture being dead, and and then a, a detailed assessment of what his role has been in uh, vis-a-vis the uprisings, particularly in Syria and more generally. Yeah, for me, one of the interesting points he makes, too, is how Adonis, who has this deserved reputation for being so revolutionary in his as a poet, uh, became like com- part of the establishment and very conformist in his editorials and his public speeches. Like, there's nothing controversial with, you know, criticizing the Arab mind or, like, right, is- right. Islamic backwardness or, you know, it's it's the discourse of, like, a whole generation of conservative old men. Right, and the discourse of power. Often uh, state power has fed into this disease of the Arab mind because, of course, if the Arab mind is diseased, then democracy and um, these sorts of other things are really... Um, not necessary. And he, Sinan does quote something where Adonis says that the Arab mind or the Arab has never known democracy. I mean, come on, an Arab can go on Google and anywhere, even if uh, their country has never in their lifetime been democratic, any Arab can go on Google and find out what their Arab mind can find out what democracy is about. Well, and also, like, and so what? What if what if that were even true, which it's not? What when these protests broke out, people wanted democracy among many other things. It just it's it seems sad to me. Actually, I feel like um, he perhaps Adonis was so in a way satisfied with his iconoclasm has been like 
draped in it for so long that he wants to be the only one who's original. And then when something really new did break out, he had to be dismissive of mm. it, uh, you know, and really missed something mm. that was that was happening. Uh, you know, people clearly really wanted something different. And to say, uh, so Robin Creswell, uh, another uh, translator and professor of Arabic literature and editor at the Paris Review, just wrote something in the New Yorker about. Adonis, and he mentions a remark that he made where he said something along the lines of no Arab revolution can be successful unless it's based on the principles of laicite. Yes, I saw. <laughs> which is the French notion of secularism, which seems like, you know, you're basically creating a standard for a real and successful revolution that is, like, unmatchable. Like, why? Who... Why would you set that definition for it unless right. you want it? from a totally other tradition. Uh, and basically, you're on from the outside basically saying that these countries can't have a revolution unless it meets a definition that is, frankly, like completely unrealistic. Unless and they're French tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I find his progression interesting and uh, the, the figure interesting and the work interesting. But uh, it's a bit sad, right? The disconnect he seems to have arrived at mm. with... The human disconnect with these, with the people who he might have had a lot in common as a young man had a lot in right, common with. Right, right, yes. And in it, uh, I mean, I had some sympathy. In in Sinan's piece, he uh, he writes, I believe that um, Adonis was initially in uh, supportive of the Iranian Revolution and then had to backpedal on that. And and so I was in some way sympathetic, like feeling. When the revolution happened, he didn't want to be proved wrong, and so it's easier to be cynical. But but he just misses the point entirely about that it it doesn't really matter if whether it was a success or a failure. That it's um, what matters is um, is the thing in itself. Well, and also if one well, can be cynical. Well, of course, it would be better if it were a success. Yeah, but well, one can be cynical about revolutions. I'm certainly more cynical about them now, having lived through the uprising in Egypt, than I was at the outset. I don't think I'll ever be romantic about a revolution. Sure, no, be- I will never feel as I did on January twenty eighth or whatever two thousand eleven. But there's a difference between sort of having a lot of caveats and thinking revolution is not in and of itself a great a great thing. It's a signal of failure. I mean, of a systemic failure. It's a breakdown. It's not a great way to. It's a really right, an extremist right, right, kind of right, thing right, to right. arrive at. <laughs> and it's fine to think that it would be better for your society not to not to be there. But that's different from sort of invalidating the the aspirations of the people who are engaged in it for reasons that you can, you know, respect and empathize with. Like yes, if you, reasons of all kinds of fresh thinking and wanting something different for them lives and wanting to break out of exactly the same sorts of things that he says he's critiquing. And I, and I think also his case brings up this really interesting question of like an ultra-secularist artist and intellectual and his relation to a society where religious belief and discourse is still like a predominant 
factor and way in of understanding the world. Mm. I mean, he has every right, and it's perhaps an interesting contribution to public discourse and thought and freedom for him to express these ultra-secularist views and these critiques of religion. But, but I think that there are... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think uh, Mahmoud Darwish, for instance, was an atheist. I think there are lots of secular slash atheist slash non-contributor on religion poets out there who... It, it's not their main goal to sort of say that there's... Um, that religion is um, such a flawed way of understanding the world and that I am so... The way I understand the world is is science. It's so much better. It's... I can understand everything, but your, you know, your embedded worldview is totally wrong. Just... It strikes me. Uh, No, I know. I think that's the... That's the sort of complexity of it. Like, as much as... um, I do sometimes feel like uh, people need people need to have the opportunity to hear and express more like differing and contrarian and contra- quote unquote controversial views, right? Mm. That there's too much control of discourse uh, in 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 so in so much of the air region. There's too much like stamping down of what people might want to say or might want to think before they even get the opportunity to kind of like just you know, exchange, Mm. and especially when it comes to religion, which is sort of this ultimate field of, like, a lot of male authority preemptively telling everyone what Mm. they can and can't do. So that, you know, uh, instinct on the part of, of anyone engaged in a creative endeavor of kind of wanting to puncture, Mm -hmm. uh, seems, seems valid. But what's hard with What's hard for me with Adonis's sort of public stance and, and, and discourse and a bit, like you say, in the work is this like utter dismissiveness of the people who don't see it the way he does. For all his powers of imagination, like one thing he just can't imagine is it seems to be the point of view of people who, and there's a lot of people the world over to whom religion is a part of their identity. Right. He can't imagine an intelligent person. He can't imagine a poet who uh, is for whom religion is an important way of seeing the world. This also, to me, seems dogmatic. It seems to be like a closing down of what we are able to say. And of course, he is not a government, but as Sinan points out, he is a very important cultural figure and with a, you know, columns and access to to to. Uh, to speaking to large audiences. And as I understand, he's very popular in Chinese translation. Really? <laughs> yeah, apparently. The only time I saw him speak was at a New York University many years ago. And the only thing I remember, other than him being sort of quite a eminence, uh, right. uh, sort of presence, um, is him saying that Islamists can't write literature, which is a pretty interesting actually because there are there is very little literature produced by islamists right and that is a kind of interesting question to address as to why that would be the case but he very much i feel sees the opposition basically he lives in the world of literature and the world of religion is another one and they are completely at odds right 
I did. I do. There wasn't a YA novel written by an Islamist, but uh, I wouldn't recommend it. Well, I mean, Said Qutb wrote a nice book before he became yes, a Muslim yes, brother. Yes, he did. You know? But that's for maybe a different. Uh, <laughs> that's for a different episode. That's actually, yes. I think, a, a, an interesting topic. Uh, why? Why that's well, the maybe case. Islamists don't really. Well, there is, of course, poetry uh, written by. Yes, but is it any good? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> but anyway, for another episode, we yes. can we can go into that. Um, all right. Well, it was nice chatting with you as usual. Yes, lovely chatting with you as well. And uh, if you like the podcast, share it, tell people about it, and we'll be back in a couple weeks. All right. Thanks, Ursula. Thank you. Bye. Bye.